I want to get a little into the weeds here and the mRNA technology. When you and you and your your colleagues were trying to decide which route to go down, the traditional vaccine route or the mRNA route, you you write that um, it was quote most counterintuitive to go the mRNA route, and yet you went that route. Explain why. It was counterintuitive because Pfizer was mastering, or let's say we had very good experience and expertise with the multiple technologies that could uh, give a vaccine. Adenoviruses, that some of the other vaccines are. We, we were very good in doing that. Um, protein vaccines, we were very good in doing that, and plus many other technologies. Yes. Um, mRNA was the technology, but we had less experience, only two years. No, that's no, no experience. And None. actually, mRNA was a technology that never <laughs> delivered a single product until that day. No experience, uh, no product. Vaccine, not any other medicine. Nothing. So, uh, so it was very counterintuitive, and I was surprised when they suggested to me that this is the way to go. But they were very and insistent. I questioned it, uh, and I asked them to justify how can you say something like that. They were very persuasive. And they came and they were very, very convinced that this is the right way to go. Very, 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 very convinced people <laughs> that, uh, of work on oh. mRNA since 2018, together with BioNTech, to uh, develop a flu vaccine. Uh, made them believe that the technology is mature and we are at the mature of, uh, after two years. two years. Two uh, So they convinced me. I, I follow my instinct that uh, they know what they are saying. Well, I follow my good. instinct. This and, is science uh, now. We made this very difficult decision. At very difficult. Very difficult. Much, much, very costly, very profitable decision. Now, hold on. I want to show you all this. Th that was a, it's a wallet that is shaped like a hundred. The problem with a wallet like this is you take it out and someone might actually think you're flashing a wad of cash. So this has become, I don't know, a, a desktop toy. Good morning, everybody. And good super duper early morning, uh, West Coast. Good evening, afternoon, and happy tomorrow, Australia. All right, how is everybody doing? Uh, the, the world is... Um, oh, it's always darkest before the storm. Oh, what are it's always darkest before the dawn or until it goes pitch black. We're gonna talk science today. It's been a week of science. I had Dr. Drew on Monday, although Dr. Drew was science and life. Um, I, I think we briefly brought up this new publication. This, it, it seems to be new, and yet when I Google it, or when I look on the interwebs for it, it seems that what's now new has been long known and was at first, as it goes, denied then admitted but minimized, and now it looks like we're at the stage three of how fake news deals with reality. Uh, admitted, acknowledged, and um, stated risk unknown. DNA, allegedly, and by the way, we are only, I'm not even taking a chance with, with YouTube who determines, you know, YouTube, the unlicensed medical practitioners, sanctioned Dr. Uh, Francis Christian for, or not him, but me, for having him on where he expresses his medical opinion. The unlicensed professionals at YouTube said, that's medical misinformation, Dr. Francis Christian. I got, I got two fingers for the YouTube and neither of them are thumbs. So they are now finally at the stage of admitting that it's, it's a problem. Or it might be a problem, potentially unknown. Denied, admit but minimized, and now it's admit and we don't know. DNA, and we're going to talk about it. Jessica Rose has been on at least twice. Uh, the first one was always the marathon get to know, so you, you know, know everything about her, but we'll do a little overview today. Second one, 
time was to talk about the Lahaina fires, which, you know, that's news cycle has moved on. It's moved on, but the people of Lahaina haven't. That's in Hawaii, the fires for anybody who doesn't remember. And now we're back to, uh, we're going to talk science today. Allegedly, apparently, DNA fragments found in every vial of uh, the jibby-jab juice coming out of wherever. What does it mean, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Let me just make sure that we are currently live. We are on Rumble. We are currently live on, Burla is a POS time bandit 66. We're live on Locals. And now I'm going to bring in Jessica Rose, the person, the woman of the hour. Uh, Jessica Rose, PhD, we're going to let her explain her credentials. We're going to talk about everything and more. Maybe even a little bit of surfing. Jessica, you ready? Three, two, one. Ma'am, how goes the battle? Yeah, good. And speaking of surfing, how did you enjoy it? Tell me. <sighs> okay, well, I'm, I'm learning the, uh, what's the word for the physics of it? I can let the wave push me in when there's enough of a wave. What I find happens a lot is when the wave is sufficiently big, I nosedive because I know I'm yeah. not taking it angle-wise. Yeah. I'm taking it straight forward. Uh, yeah. The waves out in Florida suck, so I, you know, I have to go for a storm and get them. But I understand the physics of it. I just need to get the practice of it. I have not been able to, like, you know, go sideways and right away, but it's mesmerizing being out on the open blue ocean, just going up and down and just looking for a wave, thinking of nothing else, although still thinking yeah. of stuff. It's hypnotic, but yeah, I'm I'm getting the hang of it. Well, that's amazing, considering like you just found this. Like it took me a lot longer to get that thing about nose diving and, and, you know, taking your board physically on like a 45 degree angle to get into the wave is a really good idea. Um, rearing up is a really good idea. And maybe moving a little bit back on the board is going to help you with that nose dive. Also, you have to be going a little bit faster than the wave by the time it gets to you. So you have to like really, really paddle. And you have to like, there's no doubt in that mind when you're going for that wave. Like, well, I'm the, getting on this wave. But so, it's yeah. it's terrifying because you, you do go fast. If the wave is big enough to push you, it's big enough to smash you into the ground, roll you. Yes. And, and I've been watching all of the, I mean, I've, I've been like not deep diving. I've just been, the algorithm recommends it now. Big wave surfing. Uh, what is it? No, 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 no. That'll terrify you out of the sport. Oh, dude, no, I, 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 no, that, I want to do that. But my wife will kill me. <laughs> It's, it's amazing that, what is it, the Pahuna, the Puna? It starts with a P in Hawaii. The, the massive wave, and you like, you Jaws. look at it. Yeah, say it like Jaws. They oh, call, we call, it's called Jaws, yeah. It's, that, that's a very dangerous wave, and you have to know what you're doing. Um, but Chopu is also a, a, in Tahiti. Please forgive me if I got that wrong. This is also like, just just type that in, Chiopu. It's, I think it's Tihapu. That's how yeah, you spell it. And that, it's like, well, it's, it's, that was one I'm thinking of the TOP where they, where they bring him in on uh, jet skis and then they go rescue them afterwards. And it's like, the, you understand like a heavy wave versus just a, a, a wake wave, like the entire weight of the ocean behind a massive wall of water. It's magnificent. I mean, it was yeah. very thick. So like when it's big, it's seriously dangerous. Like there's a, a professional female surfer. She's so righteous. She she got like her face ripped off on the reef, literally, and they had to like put it back on. You never know. I mean, the surgeon is genius, but like it couldn't have been uh, couldn't have been a good experience. But um, yeah, she's still big wave surfing. I mean, she, I can't remember yeah. her name. Sorry. 
I'm going I'm to bring something up in, after this ad here. Let, let's, let's just have a look at it, it. Well, then we'll get into the science, but the biggest wave ever successfully ridden. Okay, here. This is it. I think that we're on this. I think. Oh, God. That not, like, off the, what was it? Ireland? The coast of Ireland? No. Portugal. Port it's so amazing. It's, it's, okay, but just look at this. Let's get some. Wave of the day. That looks like Choku. Look. Yeah, at, I mean, and this can, this will put you under the water for like a minute or two minutes if it crashes over you and you get oh, stuck in the white. Oh, it's and just. That's that, that slow mo, dude. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. crazy. What? How do? How do you not just definitively die if that crashes over you? <laughs> Some people uh, get hurt. Yeah, it's it's not something you just start doing. I mean, you 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 really Choco's not always that big. Like you you can <laughs> you can ride smaller waves at Choco. I, I have a friend who told me about that experience and. It sounded like something I might even be able to do myself, um, but I, I'd have to get to some kind of next level training before I would even attempt it. I mean, like lungs, because like I, I can't stand in water for very long. I'm, uh, I'm not so good that way, and my ears are, they kind of don't work underwater. I, I have like narrow tubes or something, and uh, anyway, yeah, I'd have to physically, physiologically prep for something like that, just in case it took me down. Because if it takes you down, you are down. For it, down for an extended period of time. Je did I ask you this? Can I call you Jess? Because my sister yeah. is Jess. Okay, I'm not, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's the force of habit. Um, I, so I don't do that stuff. You, you can call me whatever you want that feels comfortable. I'll call you Jay. Someone in our, in our locals community yes, put up... <laughs> no, I'll call you... Jess will, Jess will be easy. So, someone in our locals community put up a tweet or a post from Steve Kirsch. And it says, I'm not aware of a single prominent... Oh well, no, no, I want to hear, get the point here is it says, I'm not aware of a single prominent scientist who went from anti-vax to pro-vax, pro-vax. So I asked Bard, I, I suspect that's AI. You are not going to believe the response. Check this out. And then it goes down to you. Well, it says Robert Malone. No, it's not me. Okay, so Jessica Rose is a former model and actress who became an anti-vaccine activist. They're mixing up. Like, I, I, I didn't know if you were a model actress before becoming a scientist. They're mixing up just two who is a model actress. So before all this started, if you typed in my name, she would come up. She's, uh, I, I think she's still act an actress. She's gonna get a lot of notoriety for this. No thanks, I don't need any applause. No, I'm kidding. Um, but anyway, she's she's a real person. But the weird thing about this this weird bard thing, I, I, I guess it's an AI, I don't know it, is that it mixed the the Jessica Rose on the, that's her, yeah. Well, the that, me Rose. Right here, yeah. Oh, so, and now, well, now I'm thinking there's a UFC fighter named Jessica Rose. Okay. There is too. So there's a bunch of Jessica Roses who's who will come up when you type in our names. But the weird part is, it's not just that it's a mix of of people, and I I don't seem to be a part of it at all because uh, the, this Jessica Rose founded ICANN, <laughs> and and she she used to be an anti-vaxxer and now she's promoting the COVID shots. <laughs> what the hell is this? Well, hold on. What what is what is ICANN, Jess? Uh, the Informed Consent Action Network. That okay. uh, they're in Syria and it, it's it's like Del Big Trees thing. Um, so it's like yeah, I I, I didn't found that. <laughs> I, I only founded a flamenco troupe a long time ago. That's the only thing I found. 
Uh, okay, so then, uh, so that's not, so that, that answers the question. AI cannot be, well, you also have, it's a relatively common name, but AI cannot be relied on, and anybody relying on it is going to get embarrassed by the results. But, Jess, now explain to the world who you are for those who missed our first two live streams. Uh, you know, the very summary overview, just set out your credentials so anybody watching this for the first time can either accept your expertise or write it off as you're not a whatever subspecies of scientist to talk about things. All right, so you can always go to my website, Jessica's Universe, and find my CV if, if you, you know, if you want to check me out. And you should. I, I think that's why CVs exist, so that you can look at what someone's done and what they've published. Um, so I've done five uh, postgraduate degrees um, in applied mathematics, immunology, um, computational biology, biochemistry, and molecular biology. And the the thought, the thing that brought me to what I'm doing now, which is basically um, using all of these backgrounds, like putting it all into one, it's kind of beautiful in a way because I'm drawing from every single thing I've done for the very first time and like utilizing it uh, for one purpose. Um, lots of data analysis, which is always a part of what I've been doing. Um, but yeah, I'm looking at pharmacovigilance databases. I'm studying the immunology of uh, what's going on when you get injected with these modified mRNA products um, and learning a lot, uh, learning a lot about genetics, oncology. I mean, there, there's there's like so many subject matters that I, I don't officially have training in, but it's, uh, it's cool that I have the background that is enabling me to learn very quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of like, it's all I do now because, I mean, there's nothing else to do. There, there's been so many rank lies and there's so much breakage in every single system now. It's like, it's almost as if you're you're not using your, whatever it is that you, you have, you know, in your background, whether it be an artist or a scientist, to, to bring some kind of truth, reality or light to, to the world. It's like, I don't know, I... I, I find it easy in that regard because it's like there's nothing else to do right now. Now, I, I've been listening to you on, on quite a few podcasts and they seem to be definitely more scientifically oriented, both in terms of the interviewer and the audience. And so I'm sitting there saying, what is, I would have stopped every few seconds to say, what does that mean? What does this mean? So I'm going to ask some very childish questions today and try to, the toughest thing for a scientist is to not dumb it down, but just explain it in terms that allow a lay person to understand what's going on. I, I know a lot of words. I don't know what the hell they mean. So I said, before we get started, I said, like, can we start from the very beginning? Like, if I ask you something that's beyond your expertise, please let me know. But let's start, oh, let's start, start from the very, very, very beginning. The, a viral infection itself, because one of the things that we hear, we're going to get into myocarditis today at some point. One of the things we hear is viral infections themselves cause myocarditis or can. They can cause inflammation. They can cause shrinkage of the brain from what I think I understand. If you, very briefly and summarily, a viral infection or COVID in particular, how does it work? What does it do to the body so that we can distinguish it from what the jab did to the body? Right. And, and there's one more thing we should talk about, the, the distinguishment. You brought this up earlier, the dis distinguishment between like conventional vaccines and, and these modified. Well, we're, we're going to get there when I ask you to explain mRNA or mRNA and all of that jazz. So, okay. okay. But first things first, you get sick, you get an infection. What's going on in your body? 
Well, you can, you, bacteria are also, you know, there, there are some guys that we should talk about. They're notorious for causing, um, let's just say, symptoms in people. When, when something gets out of balance, uh, immune system-wise, that's when things tend to um, go awry. This can happen because you're, uh, I don't know, because you're stressed out. I mean, let's just put it this way. You can be introduced to a cold virus, or let's just say flu virus, and you can get really, really sick, like really symptomatic. You can have lung involvement. Uh, it can evolve into, say, a bacterial pneumonia. Like all sorts of bad things can happen. But on the other hand, if your immune system is optimized, let's just say you are not vitamin D depleted. This is a really good example. Then it's likely that you either won't have symptoms or your symptoms will be very mild. So it's, it's a very, it's very important for people to understand the ebb and flow of the constant barrage of viruses, bacteria, fungi, fungi, we don't talk about them. They're very important to talk about because they can really mess with your brain. If they're a certain type, I don't know a lot about that yet, but I will. Um, so when you, when you get under the weather, it's basically a battle being fought between whatever it is you are introduced to and how new it is and, and the strength, the optimization of your immune system. That has a lot to do with everything, your diet, your state of mind, your, uh, your health in general. Um, it's, it's, it's a complex thing. So, um, the thing about, uh, oh gosh, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, should I go into the, the, the modified mRNA? Well, SARS, for example, is a coronavirus. And yeah, yeah it's, it's, um, there, there are cold viruses. I believe there are four strains uh, that are also coronaviruses and E2 somethings. I don't know. They have these names. And so that's what I was going to say. When this all started, we were hearing the word zoonotic pathogen, which basically means uh, when a pathogen jumps from one species to another. And that can be very dangerous because the new species won't have any immunological recognition devices for this new pathogen. So it can, it can take you down before you even start mounting a response. Um, that's why everyone was scared. That's why for about eight days until I started realizing what was going on, I was concerned because I knew what that meant. And I knew that. Had there, I'm trying to think if, there, if there's been a historical example of a virus that jumped from an animal to a human. I, I want to say the swine flu, but I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, you can say that. Like, uh, that there are. But I mean, I'm, I'm starting to question how often this actually occurs in nature versus how often it's happening because humans are being, you know, stupid in the lab. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm serious. I mean... Um, chimeric viruses are, you know, they're, they're something real. And, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know actually how many viruses have actually jumped, but it's, it's, of course it's a thing. It's a real thing. But again, I think it happens more often when people are screwing around with, um, with viruses in labs. And so um, in, in the early days of COVID, the whole, the whole thing is it came from eating a bat or a pangolin from, a, from a, a Chinese wet market. So the idea was it was a, I forget what the word was, but it starts with a zoo. Uh, it was a virus that jumped from animals to humans. And that was the terror in humanity. 
Yeah, and and they say that it had a, a very high infection fatality rate, which means and an or not, which means that it kills a lot of like if a hundred people got it, like twenty would die. Which I don't, I honestly don't think that that was true even at inception. Uh, Ebola has a high like fatality rate, like. Uh, but don't get me started on Ebola. Anyway, so they they needed everyone to not believe or even start to question whether or not this jumped out of a lab either accidentally or not so they needed to in my opinion this is this is what you know i've learned and then that i've formed my opinion on um it, it was uh this was created in a lab there's there are fingerprints and markers all over it that indicate that and um so yeah maybe it was more dangerous in the beginning that would make sense in terms of whether or not it was um, a, uh, a a virus or some kind of clone or not, but uh, yeah, I mean viruses as they pass through people, they get they get weaker generally. Now it's not impossible for something to, to get more virulent if you put it in the right environment. This is what your Vandenbosch is talking about all the time that he's worried about because. They, they've injected everybody with all this other crap all at the same time of every age group during a pandemic, like during the most spready time of this virus, which is kind of creating the circumstances for it to try and escape. Because that's what viruses do. They try and bacteria too. They try and escape. They're very good at it. So mutate, mutate, mutate. And this is all just a numbers game, right? So if you get the right mutation and that thing mutates away from being you know, not dangerous, you could have a problem on your hands. So that hasn't happened. What has happened is that this thing apparently has tapered off to something that gives you the sniffles, um, which is why all of us are scratching our heads saying, why, why are you even still, yeah, why are you pushing a, 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 an injection on us that has ingredients from something that's extinct that, that has already kind of been proven to be ineffective and, and unsafe so it's like yeah it, it makes you wonder um yeah by, by the way if just for the future if in if a very so-called dangerous zoonotic pathogen did come into the population of humans it would burn out really quickly what i mean by that is if it if it kills people readily because they don't have you know the immunity to it there's going to be like a small pool of people that are, you know, they're going, they're going to die if it, if it kills you, but that will burn out really fast because there won't be a possibility of transmission. It's better. The best scenario for a pathogen is to have something really infectious and not virulent, not, not something that makes you really sick. So that's why when I started hearing about like, it's highly transmissible, and nobody's getting sick. It's like, oh, that's beautiful. That's a vaccine. All well, I, I remember them saying that about the, the I, I think it was the first variant. But okay, if we, so back, backing it up to COVID in particular and this thing called the spike protein, which is what, this is what I'm sort of like, I feel stupid that I just can't get my head around. You get a COVID infection and it produces a spike protein in your body as a response to the virus, as a response to fighting the virus. 
You're talking about the injections? No, no, no. I'm talking about the, the, the a viral infection itself where they say they both produce a spike protein. And I just don't right. understand what that spike protein is in terms of it being a response to the infection. Uh, if you could flesh that out for thick skulled me. Flesh. Yes. So uh, when you, it, it's, it's very much along the lines of how we used to vaccinate with proteins. So you can, you can take a whole virus and modify it so that you take out like an essential gene that makes it dangerous. Like if you, if you take a, out its ability to replicate, you can put that, that whole virus in minus that gene or something and your body, and this is the same for SARS, like SARS is this little ball of spikes, whatever. Your body's going to like analyze this big ball of different kinds of proteins as peptides. And it's going to be able to like say, okay, this, this is foreign. These, this entity is foreign and these peptides are foreign. So these, these antibodies and T cells that are going to be, um, uh, responding to these new proteins that are mounted on these little flags on cells, they're going to respond to uh, all the components, all the, the different proteins that are associated with this virus, let's call it. So you're going to have spike protein bits, you're going to have core bits, you're going to have uh, like nucleocapsid bits, any bits of like proteins presented as um, foreign molecules on these these things called MHCs on the surface of cells. But um, so it's like the same thing if you if you introduce proteins to induce this immune response as it is when you're basically um, introduced to a new viral pathogen. Your 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 body's gonna like you know churn it up and present it. Um, to in order to uh, give the command to all the different arms of the immune system. I mean, you have your innate immune system, which are the front enders, like NK cells. Your skin is even part of the innate immune system. And then you have this acquired branch where it learns, that's why we call it acquired, um, which uh, epitopes, which are which of these peptides, these foreign proteins that it needs to... Uh, destroy and which cells that are showing these foreign proteins they need to also destroy so we're talking about t cells and b cells and b cells are the cells that produce these antibodies that we're always talking about so these antibodies um they have like a a, a part that doesn't really change and then they have this y part that that changes a lot it can literally like become the the, I don't know if it would be the lock or the key, we'll call it the key that, that clicks into, this is hard to do backwards. <laughs> I, I am noticing it's a mirror and I was actually just looking at my face and the wrong eye seems to be narrower oh. than the other one. All right. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, sorry. And it takes it away. So this, this is very adaptable, this little antibody Y and it, it, it clicks onto this, like this danger guy and and it takes it away, like in 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 a in a nutshell. So, okay. um, the responses are um, their primary responses, which is like the buildup of the army, and it's a little bit slower. It takes a few days to you know generate all of these cells. That's why your your lymph nodes get kind of swollen when you're sick because that's actually like expansion of clones, T cells, 
and, uh, and, and other junk. So take some time, but when you get challenged, which is when you meet the, the actual pathogen or a similar pathogen in the future, those uh, armies are there because of memory cells. There, there are these cells that actually have a job to recall, like if they've seen these specific peptides or proteins before. And they say, get to work, guys. So they send in the troops and the troops are like, they grow really fast. They know where to go because of these things called chemokines and, and, uh, and they eliminate the invader very quickly. So you don't even notice like symptoms. That's basically how vaccination works or supposed to work. <laughs> Primary oh. response, secondary response. Okay, and now, uh, as we all, uh, this is sort of, it'll be repetitive for those who've already heard it, but as we've all sort of become accustomed to the idea of vaccines, it was typically, or as we understood it, not inert, but what do they call it, um, dead uh, virus, or it was basically, it was, it was supposed Attenuated. to be the, say it again? Attenuated, like weakened version. And that would trigger, it would trigger something of a weaker systemic response so that the body would be able to fight a true uh, not a true infection, but would be able to, would, it, would be able to fight off the actual um, invader later on, which is not well. That that was the that was the technology used, I think, with the Johnson and Johnson uh, jab for this for COVID. Was the technology was different, right? Johnson and Johnson used the traditional vaccine um, method, whereas um, but it's it was, still DNA based. It's it's a um, adenovirus vector uh, with DNA, so. Yeah, it's it's not it's not completely innocent, but um, yeah, he uses a a vector like another virus, this adenovirus, which doesn't really cause illness in humans. So that you know, a vector is anything that carries something in. So yeah, but um, okay. So so right. so setting aside the Johnson and Johnson, because well, I think we're going to get into the DNA. But okay, now the mRNA technology, in terms of triggering the immune response, it. I guess you have to explain how that is because MR, it, there's no inorganic attenuated COVID virus in Pfizer or Moderna. It's this new technology, which basically, as far as I understand it, as the idiot lawyer, I mean, it tricks the body into thinking it's responding to something like COVID, but it's actually not COVID. Um, to, to, I guess the preliminary question. We heard Albert Bourla intro there, MRA, very counterintuitive because it had never made a single product. I have been told by people much smarter than me that one of the known risks of mRNA was systemic inflammation. Uh, that was one of the dangers, as far as I understood, of mRNA in whatever lab testing they had done prior to. Do you have any knowledge about historical known risk of mRNA technology, why it had never been used until now in humans? Yeah, the, I mean, in, in humans, um, we have like terminally, terminally ill cancer people being tested on with this kind of tech. It never worked out so good. And, and it's hard to know anyway, because someone who's terminally ill is going to die anyway. Um, and they've done it at some, uh, work with animals. And I believe that there are huge problems with, um, antibody dependent enhancement. But, uh, as far as, um, as far as it ever being proven to to work, no, that's that's not true at all. This this lipid nanoparticle technology that's that's the packaging. Lipid lipid nanoparticle. Now lipid is fat. Yep. Nano is small. Particle like is. Yep. 
So uh, a lipid nanoparticle, what is that? Like, what is that as a thing? Okay, so just let me like, like continue the previous thought that you had. So these things have been in development, like research and development pipeline for probably 20 years or more. And they're notoriously problematic because they're toxic. Now, a lipid nanoparticle, fat, nano 100 nanometers, which is pretty small particle, is a fat bubble. You can call it a fat bubble. Um, it's special because of one of the four component fats. So one of the fats, or four, it has four fats. It has cholesterol, it has uh, some kind of um, phosphate fat, it, it has um, uh, peg, peg, which is polyethylene glycol, which is the coating on the outside to neutralize the charge, and it has cationic lipids, which are highly positively charged. And the, the genius, and it is genius, but it should never have been injected into people behind using an ionizable cationic lipid, and I'll explain what that means, is that you can nestle negatively charged entities inside the fat bubble in discrete packets. So RNA- fat, if, if I may, the fat bubble allows it to be absorbed by the body? Yeah. Well, the, the idea is uh, once it's injected, it can transfect cells, the lipid nanoparticle, it sheds the peg over time and it either enters cells by, by endocytosis, it gets kind of enveloped by the cell based on charge differentials, or it gets taken into the cell by a receptor called receptor-mediated endocytosis. So this, this is a receptor on a, this is really hard, on a cell. And uh, it's not gonna work. Anyway, so there's a grabby bit on the outside of a cell that has like uh, a, a specific bit that it likes to grab. So, um, and, and I wanna talk about that in a second because it's important. It's something that I wrote about recently. Um, so these things, these lipid nanoparticles transfect cells, which means that they get into the cells somehow and they dump their payload into these little spheres that they get absorbed into called endosomes. And the ionizable part of this cationic lipid, which is not only creating these nice little discrete bundles of the modified mRNA and DNA, and we'll get into that too, they're also uh, scattered around the, the perimeter of this thing. So the genius in the idea is that these things decombobulate or discombobulate, whichever way you say it, at a lower pH. So at physiological pH, which is about 7.4, they're, they're meant to be staying intact. They're not supposed to be dumping their payload. When they go, get into an endosome, the pH, uh, as it matures, goes down. So as the pH goes down to like 4.5 or something, this thing is thought to like explode its contents. So then you have this modified mRNA and whatever other junk is in there, including DNA. So just to get back to the beginning though, because I'm getting a little bit like inside my own head of how I'm visualizing this. <laughs> um, this is extremely different from this conventional um, 
stimulation with proteins that we've always done as part of vaccination, and that is the modus operandi of viral pathogens, for example. This is um, these these fat bubbles that are encasing these discrete bundles of modified mRNA, and we have to talk about that too. Um, are Trojan horses. It's very hard to get from my research now, DNA or RNA into cells that's not supposed to really be there um, for this purpose. So uh, this is another genius part of the plan. Galipa nanoparticles literally are the Trojan horse. Like I said, they can get in there by receptor mediated endocytosis or envelopment. And they, they dump this payload by that method I, I just spoke about for translation of that genetic material, whatever it is, DNA or modified RNA, by the host cells machinery. We call these ribosomes. So it's it's basically the the recipe given to your cells, whichever cells are transfected, to produce massive amounts of these foreign proteins. Foreign being the key word there. So the as part of the cell's defense systems, if it detects with these special molecules or a foreign entity, let's call it, it's going to do the same thing it always does. It's going to chew up these little proteins. It's going to mount them on these little flags on the outside of the cell. And what's going to happen? It's going to flag that cell for destruction because it's got a foreign pathogen inside it, for example. So it's kind of like tricking the cell into making massive amounts of protein, but it's really bad for the cell. So bottom line is, it's probably well into the majority of cells, if not all of them, that get transfected, that will be terminated by the body's own immune defenses because they're mounting these foreign proteins. So the foreign protein that they chose was really bad. It was this... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what, what was that foreign protein? The spike protein, which is this little protein that they embedded into the coronavirus backbone. And I do mean they embedded. Um, it's it's a hideous thing, this, this spike protein. It's made up of all sorts of um, really questionable stuff. And um, so we don't know what percentage of these actual um, proteins are being manufactured by the body because... The, the RNA template, the modified RNA template, which is like the, um, the, the recipe given to the, the body to make the protein, is not complete. In, in leaked documents, it was shown that for the commercial batches or that were sampled, that were put into the commercial batches are the ones that went to, to the people, um, are 59%, on average, 59% integrity like RNA integrity. So they're, they're, they're really, really not close to 100% coding the spike protein. They're coding something, but we don't exactly know what, and it's pretty much impossible to find out what, because everybody's different. We don't know which cells are transfected. Different cells are gonna make proteins, you know, at different rates and stuff. Um, so there's so many question marks about this new technology that Albert Borla was uh, was convinced to use. Well, um, let me 
I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to pronounce it. We all say DNA and take these terms for granted. Deoxyribonucleic acid is DNA. Uh, but then RNA is ribonucleic acid. So if you could flesh out for us, I mean, just summarily, functionally, practically, what's the difference between DNA and RNA? So the DNA is like the, the building block of blocks of life. Like we're, we're all made up of DNA. It's this double helix thing with these um, four, you know, the, the adenine, thi- I'm, gonna, I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> and they my cat's bombing me (laughs) at least we know what that is now i I saw that thing coming out of the corner i wasn't wasn't sure what it was okay sorry it's my cat he he always has to get involved um so let me back up so so there's this central tenet of uh biology whereby we have dna rna messenger rna and protein so the messenger RNAs is kind of like the intermediate between DNA, which is us. It's like what we're made of. All the the, the major recipe book that that makes all of our all of our proteins and stuff. Um, so it's like the intermediate between that basic material and the proteins that we actually like have to make all the machines that we have working in our body everything that we are basically um so you have transcription from dna to messenger rna and i I, i'm going to talk about this because we need to talk about this in order to understand this dna contamination thing um and then you go from your messenger rna to protein by translation so it's it's they call it the central dogma or tenet of biology so um yeah, messenger RNA. This is really important. It's it's necessary. It's like it's it's part of the parts of who we are. Without this intermediate, there'd be like it would be hard to get from DNA to protein. Let's put it that way. Some people would disagree with me, but <laughs> um, so the difference between messenger RNA that they all said, yeah, don't worry about it. This this is very um, you know. Uh, degradable it, it it's not going to last uh, at all you know two days most and then it'll all be like removed from your body but what they didn't tell us and what people still really aren't saying enough is that this isn't messenger RNA it's modified messenger RNA so you can specifically modify RNA by um, adding like tagged you know uh, tagged dyes, you can, like if you want to tag a uridine, for example, to make it glow or something, you can swap out uridines for pseudouridines or N1-methyl pseudouridines. And that's what they did. That's exactly what they did in the case of Pfizer and the Moderna product. So within this um, coding sequence, you have a certain number of each um, nucleotide. So let's just say you have, for example, I don't know, 100 uridines, which is one of the the coding guys, the nucleotides. You can replace those with 100 N1-methyl pseudouridines. And basically what you're going to do is you're going to effectively change what that is. You're going to modify it. So 
the thing that the reason they did that is because when you do that, apparently it allows the uh, this entity to evade immune detection via innate immune system detection methods, like these things called toll-like receptors, but we, we don't need to talk about that. So basically what it does in layman's terms is that it makes it very stealthy and it makes it durable. There are also some other problems that come doing this though, which I'm gonna talk about. Um, so this is modified in a very specific way. And the, the idea was that this is a good thing because it's going to help this thing stick around a little bit longer because it's stable and stealthy so that it can make more, so that more protein can be made. So it was, it was kind of like an optimization step, but there, there are also like everything involved in this. There are so many potential problems that weren't actually explored. They didn't do like studies to test what, what's going to happen if this goes wrong or if this goes wrong, or they didn't even ask the question, what's going to happen to a cell that's all of a sudden introduced with the, all of these N1-methylpseudouridines because it's not used to seeing these things. What's going to happen? So um, if, I, if I keep going, I'll tell you. Um, well, actually, uh, just we know the term mRNA, and we've been using that as mo uh, a messenger ribonucleoacid, whatever that is, but it's actually modified mRNA, which I'm not sure that I, people might appreciate the importance of. Um, okay, I, I'm still like the child who doesn't even know how to ask the question. Oh, it's awesome. So, so the, the, the DNA, we know the DNA are the building blocks of your body. Um, what was the interplay between DNA and proteins? Which, which one makes which? DNA has to make protein. Yeah. Okay. And, and DNA can interact with proteins. This is really interesting. So, um, for example, and, and this is important for what we're going to talk about, so I, I'll bring it up now. There's this... A uh, thing called P53, which is called the guardian of the genome, and it actually um, it locks onto the the DNA, like with within your cell. It, it lives in the nucleus, and it it acts as a surveillance molecule. Um, and it it can I, actually, I'm not sure I should be talking about this yet, but anyway, it's. It's very important in surveillance of double-stranded DNA breaks. And so if, if there's, yeah, I'm gonna talk about this after because I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but just to go back to my, um, what I was saying, DNA and proteins can actually interact, um, but DNA is, is required. It's the building blocks for, prote for proteins. So it's, uh, it's the one, two, three step process. Okay, it. and now, uh, this I, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Maybe it'll be the segue. Da damaging your DNA is bad. Just to put it simply, well, no, it, it happens all the time. Um, it's the, the key thing that we need to all like come back to is that damage is being done all the time, but repair is also being done all the time. So it's it's this gorgeous balance between damage and repair that if it gets disrupted, you can get into trouble. So if you have this, I'll go back to P53. If you have this surveillance guy, have it, let's say it gets a mutation and it can't click onto that DNA anymore to, to 
run along it to determine if there are any breaks, then there's not going to be anything signaling to all these other guys who repair those breaks to say, hey, hey, is problem, problem in aisle four. Uh, come on, clean up file aisle four. It's a bad analogy. <laughs> anyway, so my point is... <laughs> I, had, I you, understood it. I mean, maybe it's the perfect analogy. <laughs> I, I conceptualize that. <laughs> okay. Good, good. Clean up in aisle four. So if the cleanup guy is out having a smoke forever, then you're you're not going to have cleanup of your double-stranded DNA break aisle. <laughs> so anyway, my point is that if you if you have any kind of imbalance, and let's just say you have a number of different kinds of imbalances, let's say you you for some reason you have a mutation in your p53 gene, and you also have some kind of damage of a a, a DNA double-stranded DNA repair break guy and and then let's say you have i don't know you have some kind of dysfunction with this ras gene that that is in charge of proliferation of cells i mean if you have a number of different let's call them defects or mutations at the same time then your chance of having say a tumor form which is just you know it's it's a over proliferation and overgrowth of cells then that's cancer. So, and again, I mean, it's, it's funny, but we're cancering all the time, basically. It's just that we have these counter mechanisms that basically keep everything in check so that our bodies are normal, normally functioning most of the time. When you get, say, like a tumor, or like I was saying before, if you get really sick, then it's a, some kind of normal mechanism or bunch of mechanisms getting out of whack. Okay. All right. Now, um, before we get into the DNA, you've been tracking a lot of the data. I don't know what the latest is now. I, 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 from what I understand, right. Pfizer has added to their list of side effects, myocarditis, a number of other things. What have been the demonstrable um, nefarious side effects and what is the state of those in terms of stats and um, like confirmation as of this point from the jab. You wait, can you say it again? Do you mean uh, only for myocarditis or do you well, mean like- say, Let's say uh, the, the latest on, let's say myocarditis in particular, but also now if you're following the various, you've been following it, I don't know what's the latest updates, but what, what have been the latest trends that you've noticed from, from various and from uh, noted and uh, documented side effects? And I guess the next question is going to be the why, but where we're at now in terms of the various trends. Okay, I finally got you. It took three times. <laughs> so that, that, and I, I guarantee you it was me and not you. <laughs> no, it was me. I was like, shit, it's getting dark. I got to get the light on without like showing everyone my armpit. And I didn't succeed. <laughs> That's how my brain works. Okay. Um, so, uh, well, first everyone should know something uh, with VAERS, as of October 6th, which is what, three weeks ago or Three something? weeks ago. They stopped uh, updating uh, VAERS weekly. So I, uh, my, my friend at Open VAERS told me that it's because they've reverted to what they were doing pre-COVID. So since I, I don't know anything about any of this stuff pre-COVID, I mean, I came into this by accident. I'm taking her word for it because she knows this stuff. 
And so we're only getting updates monthly. So we're getting data less frequently and um, probably what we're gonna get are very large data sets every month. So something has changed in fairs, but as of October 6th, all the trends were on the up, uh, still going up. And this is partly because of backlogs being, um, you know, fixed up. It's partly because new reports are being filed. Um, there are surges in reports being filed for, uh, for babies, zero to four. Big one, the rate of reporting is going up much faster in that age group than for the other age groups, the CDC age groups, um, which is pretty alarming. A um, lot of administration errors going on. Um, myocarditis is still on the rise. The, the exact same profile um, for like if you if you pull out all of the myocarditis reports in VAERS and make a graph where you have all the ages on the x-axis, like zero to 112, and all the reports on the y-axis, like just the number of reports. Um, and you overlap on the graph, if you can imagine this, the number of reports per dose, what you're gonna see is that after dose two, in 15 year olds, and this is for boys primarily, there's like five times more reporting going on. So it's, it's absolutely indicative that there's something different going on in, in the boy and also you know, with, with the injury from the shot between dose one and dose two. So it's, it's good that they're, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about this because you, you know that I penned this paper with Peter McCullough in 2021, right? Yep. It was, it was force withdrawn. We're, we're, we have it up now. It's going through review again now, the updated version, but um, we've known this. Anybody who looked at VAERS, the owners of VAERS are the CDC and HHS. You know, anybody who looks at it would have seen this safety signal and that's what VAERS is for. It's a safety signal generator meant to be assessed using causality and assessments or whatever. And um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's a safety signal that's been like, boop, boop, boop. From what, the is the, what is the pro temporal proximity of the VAERS report to the second jab? Because the argument is gonna be, and you hear it, it's just all over the place online, COVID causes myocarditis. So the, the question is gonna be, how do you track the spike after the second jab temporally to the, to the jab itself? What is the time frame within which you're seeing that report? So you're talking about the, the time, the, like the percentage of people say who reported uh, an incident of myocarditis say within 24 hours no let's say within a week said, yeah let's say a week of the second after, jab yes right after dose one versus the percentage of people who reported um a myocarditis incident or the number of people let's say uh after or within seven days of dose two i'm Correct. trying to wrap my head around this <laughs> no no exactly because I, for those who say well look it could all be from COVID itself the question, they can say that, but if there's a demonstrable temporal proximity within the, okay. And, and not only that, but like, I, I'm just going to be a horse's ass here. Um, the number one reported adverse event in VAERS 
continues after about a year to be COVID-19. And this is based on a positive, you know, SARS test or, uh, you know, one of the other metric codes is vaccination failure um, or, or COVID pneumonia or something like this. So it seems to be when you combine that with some of the peer reviewed literature that there is uh, a susceptibility acquired with multiple shots to COVID-19 itself, which is, these are the symptoms. So it's actually susceptibility to SARS and the, the whatever, whatever the symptoms are. Either that, or people are getting COVID-like symptoms from something else because their immune system's been depressed by something in these shots. There's also this issue of tolerance. So you can get a shift to a tolerizing situation in your body which basically means your your immune system isn't seeing these guys as bad guys anymore. They're just like, eh, those aren't those aren't trouble. So we'll leave them alone. And so they wreak havoc in whatever way they're going to. And when you're talking about the spike protein, which is you know it, it it's really bad for cells and red blood cells especially. It's like you don't want that stuff running rampant in your body. You don't want any foreign protein running rampant in your body. So yeah. So VARES is showing what it always has from January 2021. That's a really important point. Safety signals were like this death included. January 2021 is going to be eight, well, March, April, May, June, July, August. September. Six weeks. Well, no, it's going to be January 2021 oh. is going to be like eight months into it. People might say like, I understand that they're, 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 oh, I see what they're saying, yeah, COVID. Yeah, they're filing these reports within proximity of the release of the jab, but it might have been delayed responses or they might all be related to infection itself. But this is where I had, you know, I had Dr. Drew on on Monday and he said, look, yes, uh, myocarditis inflammation can be a risk of any viral infection. But he said, and I defer to his his better expertise, when it comes from a viral infection, typically those symptoms are all resolved within a year. And what we're seeing is not the case in terms of myocarditis resulting yes. from. Sorry, go for it. No, sorry, I cut you off. No, yeah. no, well, let's say, so you say we, we, we what was typically those, any inflammation resolves itself within a year of infection, which is, seems to be not the case with the jab, but um, I don't know any better. No, it's true. I mean, there, there's something uh, continuous going on here. And, you know, it could just be because people keep injecting themselves. It could be this integration issue that we're going to talk about, the continued production of spike protein. You know what I mean? Like, Occam's razor would say, if something isn't resolved, its presence is probably still there. So, you know, it's, 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 it's probably that. I mean, if, if you're still, if you're suffering inflammation anywhere, then, and it's persistent, then that's, that's some kind of ongoing, you know, loop between whatever is causing the inflammation and, and the inflammatory mediator. So it's like, yeah. Um, now, I'm, I, I, I almost feel, I feel stupid asking the question, but I still have to ask it. The questions are awesome. The jab. Th this is just the, the cause and effect that I've not yet understood. Does the, the jab triggers the spike protein response in the body, or does the jab introduce the spike protein to which your body is supposed to respond? So the, the jab template gives your body cells the instructions to make the protein against which your body mounts an immune response. Okay. And that is what is being referred to as 
It's tricking the body into creating the spike protein. Well, it's not tricking. It's, it's, it's a mechanism of action. I mean, if you introduce coding material to the right places, you know, near the ribosomes, then the rib ribosome is going to ribosome. <laughs> you actually said ribosome. That's from Billy Madison where the teacher's like, and the ribosome's not happy. And then Billy Madison's looking at us like, oh, the ribosome. Okay. So it is tricking. It's stimulating the body to producing the spike protein. It is the prolonged production dealing with the spike protein that is causing all sorts of inflammation issues and then arguably um, other potential risks. It's having that spike protein in the body for prolonged periods of time, which is not, um, which is bad. Whereas if you get an infection, your body produces spike proteins to fight the infection. It goes away after a week or two. In this case, with continual jabs, your body is just basically continuing to produce spike protein. It's lasting longer in the body than was announced and it's going everywhere. And is that a sufficient layperson understanding? Yeah, it's, it's more peptides of spike protein. But yeah, another thing that's really important, a lot of people ask like, okay, so what's the difference between, you know, getting the infection and like getting natural immunity and, and getting the jab to get immunity? And it's like, well, besides all the toxic shit and the stupidity of the technology, <clears throat> your, your, your dose, so-called, is it's not comparable. Even if you get a really big punch of virus, you know, upon introduction of SARS, like say someone sneezes right into your nostrils, like even if you get that. You're <laughs> you know, anyone with kids knows like you're sitting with your kid, the kid goes, Bleh! and it's like right up in your face and your eyes everywhere. So yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, Jessica. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> when, that ha when that happens. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, so you, you have a much better chance that, first of all, you're, you're going to get your mucosal immunity, um, on the go, which is like why it's really stupid to try and in, use this kind of, uh, you know, methodology to, to fight a coronavirus. Um, but the dose that you get, there are, um, billions, billions of lipid nanoparticles being injected into you all in one go per dose. And then it's estimated that there are trillions of these, you know, spike protein derivatives, whatever they are. Think about that. I mean, In but that's, that has to be relativized, like trillions introduced or produced by the body. What, what is that compared to a baseline of zero or do you always have billions? Well, yeah, in this particular instance, yeah. I mean, you know, it's in terms of virions, well, it's a good question. How many virions would constitute like the virion is a viral particle? So how many would constitute a really good dose? I don't know, but it's not, it's, I, I don't know exactly, but it's not the same scale. Well, I mean, it's quite clear. You're, you're jacking something up into your body. And when they say, I mean, I, I was just flabbergasted just going back to trust the science where they said you could do it within six to eight weeks of a prior infection. And I'm not a doctor. I'm just a reasonable person. Like, I don't know what sense that makes to go get a massive boost after shortly after an infection and it seems like you're just maximizing risks for everything exactly you okay. are yeah um all right. yeah. i just want to make this point for for all the spike people the lipid nanoparticles themselves these fat bubbles with these cationic lipids they're really bad too and there's a possibility that i'll, I'll try and um okay so a paper came out uh, called a deadly embrace, and it's about hemagglutination, which means your red blood cells, which look like these little red discs, 
um, which are in your, your circulation, um, clump together. That's hemagglutination. And they clump together because like antibodies like stick them together. So the reason why this can happen is because they have this thing called, uh, they, they have detractive forces between them and it's called a zeta potential. So it's kind of like if you try and hold two magnets too close together, they won't, they won't be able to touch. So that's, that's why red blood cells aren't constantly sticking together. So if you introduce a spike protein, this is, this is published paper. It interferes with this zeta potential, this uh, detractive force and pulls them together. So that's why I think that we're seeing a lot of clotting and we're seeing low formation. Some people are showing that, which is, it's like when you, you know, those candies called Rolos. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it looks like Rolos, except it's actually called a Rulo. Uh, so I, I'm hypothesizing here based on what I like this much that I know about Zeta potential, which is this, you know, thing that keeps things apart, discrete. Um, is that lipid nanoparticles themselves might also uh, ex exercise this effect on red blood cells. So the thing is, we don't know. We've never done a study. After all of this time and all these billions of people injected with this crap, we do not have a study that shows the effects of lipid nanoparticles alone, empty lipid nanoparticles on human, physi sorry, human physiology. We know now, based on these Freedom of Information Act requested um, documents of pharmacokinetic studies, which basically just means where's this drug going in the body studies, that these things, the lipid nanoparticles go everywhere. And if I may, I, I just want to tell you guys what I found out recently. Um, fat bubbles are fat bubble is a fat bubble. This is going to turn into a poem. <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds like a Kamala Harris poem right now. A fat oh, bubble Lord, is no! a bubble of fat. <laughs> it's a and fat today, bubble that bubbles. <laughs> and we know that the past in the West oh. was the East and the stars. And that's why. <laughs> no, so a fat <laughs> bubble, a fat bubble is a bubble of fat. Um, yes. that you're in, well, what's, and okay, sorry. So go on and explain what the fat bubble, a fat bubble, fat bubbles, but what does it do? I'm going to try and do this. Um, th this is hard. Um, I, I, I've learned all this recently. It's really cool. So when we eat, you know, we, we have a mixture of carbohydrates and proteins and fats. And if you're like me, you eat a lot of fat and that has to get metabolized. And some of your cells, they, they like fat, they store fat or they use it for energy consumption. And so when you eat fat, it goes through the thoracic duct first and, and gets passed through your circulation for, for biodistribution of these fats so that you can nourish the essential cells in your body, like your muscle cells or your adipose tissue. And so... This is so flippant. It's so ridiculous. This is all just happening right now. I just I had know, breakfast and it's all just happening. And I'm sitting I here know. worried about, oh God. Okay. It's, it's, it's mind blowing, but I'm sorry. I just had to interject. No, that. I, all I, right. I, I so it. it's all getting broken down, circulated around. It's got this, so your body can distribute the nutrients. Okay. Fact. So it's like, this is specifically for fat. So ultimately, um, and, and, and I know this is a, a scary word. It's called a chylomicron. 
It's a special fat bubble that's got um, cholesterol and uh, what's that other one? Triglycerides. And so it's this, these fat bubbles that travel around and they make these pit stops, you know, all along the way. And they're like, hey, you need some fat. And they're like, yeah, I could use some over here. And so they, they pass out their fat along the way. And then eventually they get depleted and it's, it, it gets converted to a chylomicron remnant. <laughs> and once that, like, as that's happening, there are these things called apolipoproteins, which are basically just fat proteins. They have the ability to like um, be with fats and proteins at the same time. And they stick onto the outside of this chylomicron fat bubble. This is also a fat bubble. And so you have these proteins embedded in the surface of this fat bubble, these lipoproteins. And like I was saying before, a lot, of, uh, a lot of things in the body have specific receptors. So these guys, these little, little depleted fat bubbles with these specific lipoproteins now get targeted to the liver because the liver is really rich in the receptors that bind these lipoproteins. And that's by design because mother nature is so freaking cool. This is and how it cleans out your body. It cleans out your body from the resi re residue well, stuff. Yeah. It, it's, it's how it it's fat metabolism. It's how the fat gets metabolized naturally. So it ends up in the liver and then the liver does, you know, some more like, you know, yeah, I could use this and yeah, you're going to go over there and make some other types of fat bubbles and then sends them back out and the cycle continues. But my point here is, some biotech people learned about this, this fat metabolism thing with this, I'm going to call it APOE, okay? It's apolipoprotein E. It's the thing that, that clings onto the chylomicron and sends it onto the liver. Some brilliant biotech people found out a way to exploit this and target drugs using fat bubbles that they made to the liver. And so... <laughs> The thing about that is, and it's successful, this is all published too. There's a drug on the market, market called Onpatro, O-N-P-A-T-T-R-O, that, that uses, it exploits this fat metabolism system, this APOE molecule, to target fat bubbles that they make to the liver. Now, here's the important part. And this is conjecture now, but it's seriously like, why wouldn't it? The lipid nanoparticles used by Moderna and Pfizer are exactly the same formulation as the lipid nanoparticles that were formulated for this drug that functionally target these drugs to the liver, except for the cationic lipid. But it's still a cationic lipid. It's an ionizable cationic lipid. So property-wise, it shouldn't have any different effect. The only difference between the the drug that I was talking about that they, they, <clears throat> they have in circulation and these, these COVID things is the package, the, the thing that they're packaging. So it's silencing RNA on one hand, which is a different kind of RNA, turns off a gene and modified RNA in the case of the COVID shot. So what I'm thinking, you've probably already figured it out, <laughs> is that since they're so similar and they do make it to the bloodstream where this APOE is ubiquitous because as part of normal fat metabolism, 
it goes whoop to these chylomicrons and brings them to the liver. Why wouldn't it do the exact same thing to the lipid nanoparticles? And that could actually be the mechanism of action for why we see second to the, the injection site, the highest accumulation of lipid nanoparticles according to pharmacokinetic studies. It's not the only place, but that's probably because, and this is also an hypothesis, the receptor, the APOE receptor, is expressed in many places in the human body, many places. So it could actually be that it's, it's specific. It's a specific lipid nanoparticle is what we call it when it has this property of being targeted for receptor mediated endocytosis, which is basically bringing something into a cell via a receptor. That's all I have to say. Okay, it's good because I don't even know what question to ask about all that. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, I, I, it's like uh, I, I, it, it's fascinating. I just it takes me some time to get it. When it clicks, it's going to click. But now, so if we can get into the, I guess the story of the day, where we've we've gotten one hell of an introduction, and I, I well, hope people. Well, the, the DA, so now the news, let, let me, the news or at least the concern of the day, we, of all the other um, statistically demonstrable issues, and now I, I brought up a couple of articles. Let me see which one this is. Here, look at this. It's, it's so funny watching how this works. Um, which one are we looking at here? We're looking at this one. Claim that COVID-19 mRNA vaccines contain DNA contaminants based on study of vials of unknown provenance. No evidence COVID-19 mRNA vaccines can alter DNA in people. You see, what they did the two things here. Undermine the study, which unknown providence. We don't know where it came from. And there's no evidence that it hurts anyhow. But then if I go to the next article, which I think was more recent than that, and it starts with contrary. It's right over here. I think this one was, I think I got the right order. I hope it did. Let me see here. I did. Okay. Contrary to viral <laughs> claim, regulatory agencies knew of residual DNA in COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. No evidence this poses health concern. And this is from Steve Kirsch. Now, so, I, and I heard, you You know, the, I'll, I'll give the, the, the good news first is that as you ended one of the other podcasts that I listened to, you said, look, if you feel fine, you're probably fine. There's no, there's no, look, there's no uh, statistical, uh, verifiable, demonstrable issue yet known as with, you know, say myocarditis, for example. But the concern now is that what they had denied and written off as conspiracy theory, there's no DNA in the, in the, in the jabs, it's unknown provenance, we don't know where they came from. Now, they, now it's confirmed. But this is the question, okay, like, this is where I feel just terribly stupid. What the hell is the big deal if there's DNA in, something, in, in, in a jab? Now, I presume there's DNA in a lot, I mean, there's DNA in the food we eat that goes in through a different spot, it gets dealt with differently. I don't know what you would ever inject into your body that would have DNA into it. I'm thinking like, not that anybody don't do drugs, period. I don't know. Is there DNA in heroin type thing? Like what is, what is, why would there be DNA in there in the first place? And then scientifically, what could possibly be the concerns of DNA in a jab? Okay. So your point first, I just want to say exactly, just like I said, when they said, no, it stays at the injection site. You people are spreading misinformation for even asking a question about whether or not this is going to biodistribute. Of course it does. Now it's proven. Same thing here. There's no such thing as integration with these products because it's mRNA. First of all, I want to say that a paper came out a while ago 
that showed that this re reverse transcriptase, which is when you go from RNA back to DNA, it's an enzyme that can allow that to happen, exists in us endogenously. Like we, we have it, it's called line one, and it acts to do this reverse transcription, which means that there's a DNA form of these things in us. It has not been shown whether or not integration ensues, but I just want to point that out that we already have a looming question mark over integration before any of this started. So back to manufacturing process. And I'll horrify you with another story before I tell you about that. So there's two ways that you can make this modified mRNA production ones that I'm going to talk about. Um, one is called process one and one is called process two. The clinical trials that Pfizer did, and I'm going to talk specifically about Pfizer here, um, utilized mRNA, modified mRNA, packaged in these lipid nanoparticles that were made one way. And the commercial batches that went in, into all the, the billions of people, the modified mRNA from those things, was made in a completely different way. And that you might say, so, may, maybe the second way was better. But it might be better in terms of we needed to scale up the product for cheap, but there are all these problems that might come into play because they switched out this, um, this manufacturing process. Josh Getzko is the best guy to talk to about this. He calls it, he's penned it, I think he penned it, the bait and switch, because nobody was told. We learned this recently that there were these two processes and that one was used to test out this product in these people, the 20,000 or so people that got the drug in that trial, and the billions of people over here who got injected. They got, they got a product that was um, made using a completely different process. So onto the process. Instead of making the modified mRNA from DNA that was made using PCR in the process one, we have modified mRNA that's made from DNA that's mass produced using a plasmid E. coli system. So there's a five-step process if you want to make modified mRNA. I, I'm, I'm going to yeah, you, ask, sorry, you said plasmid E. coli. Yes. Okay. So you, you make your DNA template in a computer, which is going to be end up being your little gene. So a plasmid is a circular DNA. It's really hard. And it has um, all the things that you need to make stuff. Let's just say it like really simply. You have a gene of interest, which in this case is the spike gene, because we want to make lots of spike DNA in the beginning. We're talking about DNA. We have antibiotic resistance genes, so we can like pull out the bacteria that, that only have the plasmid of interest with the spike DNA. We have uh, things that allow for transcription to ensue. Anyway, we have all of these little component parts as part of the circular DNA. And in the lab, this is all in the lab now, we get these circular DNAs into E. coli bacteria, and we use E. coli bacteria all the time. I've played with more E. coli bacteria in my protein biology time than I can tell you about. It's fun. They, uh, they're stinky. And they um, they love sugar and shaking. 
Well, and the e-, e. coli is the one that if you eat it, you'll get very sick, vomit, diarrhea. Yeah, I, th- I suppose if you, if you did that. Um, e-, e. coli is what they warn you about on, it, it comes in poo-poo and it gets lettuce. on. Oh, say that again? Lettuce, yeah. You don't eat the lettuce because you'll get E. coli, yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay, anyway, so um, yeah, it's in your poop. So we use it in bioreactors because it doubles every 20 minutes or so. It's it's very fast growing and it doesn't cost any money to grow up bacteria. You literally just need to give it some some sugar and some antibiotics, uh, some warmth, like they like 37 degrees and some shake. So they, they really do like to party. Um, when you transform these bacteria with the plasmid, which basically just means you you put it in certain circumstances so that the plasmids get into the bacteria and the bacteria multiply, they're bringing those plasmids with them. So they double, 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 double. So you can imagine after a very short period of time, you have a shit ton of plasmids with this DNA in it. So that's the point of this upscaling because they wanted a cheap, fast way to make a lot of DNA for making the modified mRNA, but, I'm going to get to this (laughs) after linearizing, which just basically means like taking your circular DNA, cutting it and making it into a line instead of a circle. You do something called in vitro transcription, which converts it to the the modified mRNA in this case, because you're inserting your pseudouridines during this process. So, you know, it's adding these guys um, at the right places. And at the, the end of this process, Finally, you have this mix of modified mRNA, you have some DNA remnants, you might have something called lipopolysaccharide, which is part of the membrane of the E. coli. You have all of these bits as part of the manufacturing process. So we use filtration, physical filtration, to remove DNA with DNases. We chop it up with this thing called DNase one usually, we filter it out, we get rid of endotoxin, and at the end of the day, at the end of your process, you have this pure, like mRNA, typically, and in this case, modified mRNA product. Teacher, endotoxin doesn't sound good. No, it's, it's if you inject endotoxin, you're, gonna, you're either gonna die or get anaphylaxis or sepsis, it's pretty bad. So right. I'll get then- into that. And that actually answered my other question. I was just about to ask you, like, what happens if you just inject straight E. coli into your body? Uh, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Um, yeah, I also wouldn't inject heroin, though. So, some people would do that. Um, so yeah, the, the, the thing about this that everyone needs to understand on, on the subject matter of good manufacturing practices and deception, um, at the end of each of these stages, quality control is supposed to ensue. We have to, especially at the very end, when we're cleaning our product, which is the most expensive step, by the way, got got to make you wonder if they skipped some steps, cut some corners. Um, you, you check for DNA. And they did, but some of the DNA levels were pretty high. There shouldn't be any residual DNA of any measurable level definitely not over the so-called threshold for the um, the allowable amount of DNA following this process because injecting foreign DNA can be bad and we'll get to that. 
um, there should be no endotoxin at all, because even if you inject, and I don't know exactly what concentration you need to inject in order to kill someone, I'll find that out soon. But uh, I imagine any amount is not good because you can also have an anaphylactic reaction. And so there are a number of tools, machines, methodologies that you can use to ensure a pure product. So that's the part that gets me. It's like, where are all the documents not redacted that show the DNA levels the endotoxin levels for each lot, where are they? The only ones I've seen are completely blacked out. And this is because it's, you, you make a vat or a, you know, a batch or whatever, and you test it for all of this before it goes out systematically without exception. Yeah, as part of the process, of course you do. So what the hell happened? Because I'll jump to the punchline now, five labs. Have, have reproduced this result in every single vial that they randomly tested. And this, the, this is not something that they, you know, some anti-vaxxer gave them. Like the, these are vials that were like gotten from pharmacies, for example, not opened, not doctored. They all, all have DNA in them. I, you know, it's like Kierkegaard's expression over and over again. I, I was just going back to this article. This is from April 2022, where Moderna recalls vaccine batch after foreign substance found. And then I, I was just trying to find what the what? substance was and yeah. all that they're referring to it as a foreign body. And now I'm wondering, was it DNA or sorry, say that again? Was that in Japan? That was hold on. Let me get. I think it was Europe, if I'm not mistaken. Hold oh. on, where's Moderna? Oh, I didn't know that. Mardana, I'll, I'll give you the link. It's just, there were, there were, I remember all of the, there were multiple batches that were recalled. It was, uh, okay, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was in Spain, this one. The Spectre. I, I didn't know about this. Yeah, the batch contains 800,000, yeah, deployed across Norway, Portugal, Spain, yada, yada. Moderna yanked the shots because of a, quote, foreign body found in one vial of the batch. I'll flip you this article. So, and I don't even know, I still don't know. I was just doing a word search to see if they identify the substance and I don't think they do. Here, I'll put it in the private chat. Um, okay, sorry. So uh, they're now finding, at least in every one that they've tested, DNA. What's, they're, it's gonna go from there was no DNA to we don't know where this batch came from to, okay, there's DNA in there, but it's not harmful. And I guess that's yeah. where we're at now. But they've already gone there. What would be what 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 could be the risk other than it shouldn't be there? It might indicate a, a manufacturing problem. What could be the actual real life risks? Okay, so the reason why we have these methodologies for removing contaminants from products, especially ones that you're going to inject, is because we have decades long, you know, case studies, research, publications that show what happens if you have a contaminant uh, exposure. Let's just say, to be really extreme here, if you inject glass particles into your blood, it's probably gonna be bad. So we're talking about DNA here and possible endotoxin. So let's focus on the DNA. You're not supposed to inject foreign DNA into the body. You're definitely, like this is why I call the lipid nanoparticles a Trojan horse because this is a brilliant way to 
to what's that word that um, Philip used? It's like use a gun, but it's like like shrapnel going everywhere. What what is that called? Buckshot. That's what he said. So it's like invade. Like this is a way to buckshot a a bunch of stuff. Let's just call it stuff that's not supposed to be there into a cell. Imagine the poor cell. It's like what the hell is all this shit? Like, and, and it starts doing what it does. Like, it responds immunologically. Um, it, uh, it, 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 you know, it envelops what it can. It, it sends some things out of the cell. And in some cases, things get into the nucleus. So this is where it starts to get really sketchy, okay? Well, this is where it starts to get really complicated. I keep hearing it. it. The DNA gets into the nucleus, and I don't understand. What nucleus? Okay, so every cell except for a-nucleated cells. A-nucleus <laughs> means it doesn't have a nucleus. Yeah. Um, has a nucleus. And that's where the genetic material lives, for lack of a better word. Your DNA. That's where your DNA lives. It's highly protected because it needs to be highly protected because everything is our DNA. If, if we have all these beautiful mechanisms to conserve the yeah to conserve the integrity of our dna as we age it's harder to do as we age very hard to do if you're exposed to pollutants but our bodies do a really good job imagine like i'm almost 50 i used to be a smoker i i i live in you know air pollution central I, uh, I, I drink alcohol sometimes. Um, I expose myself to a lot of shit. That's what I'm saying. And it's like, I'm, I'm really freaking healthy because my body's, I'm lucky, but my body's got these, you know, these ways to keep the things that need to be kept intact intact. And your DNA is one of those things. You, you need to close those double-stranded DNA breaks when they happen. They're happening all the time, like I said, but they get repaired and we have these mechanisms to detect like um, anomalies. So um, this is where it gets complicated. I have to go back to the plasmid, okay? The circular DNA. So Kevin McKernan is the guy who originally um, did this research and it was quite by accident. He was actually looking for an RNA positive control. I kept saying negative, but I think it was a positive control he was looking for. And someone had passed him those uh, bivalent vials, I don't know, for something a while back. And so he had them in his freezer and he was like, oh, that would work. He was doing something else. Like in his, he has a genomics lab that it's called medicinal genomics. That's, this is what he does. Um, he's a serious guy, really serious. He worked on the human genome project. Anyway, so as part of this, you know, stuff he was doing, uh, testing this product, um, he discovered, like I said, quite by accident, that this um, this this double-stranded DNA plasmid, like there, it had the principal components for an entire circular DNA, and within this, like that's not supposed to be there. First of all, within that, he found component parts. Now I'm going back, I'm going to something I haven't mentioned yet that were not disclosed in the plasmid that Pfizer 
has in one of their uh, disclosure documents. So what I'm trying to say here is that we have two plasmids that are supposed to be exact, exactly the same, but they're very, very different. And they're different in scary ways. So the, the additional components that um, Kevin found called the SV40 promoter, an enhancer, and he also found a neomycin gene. And I don't know, I don't know about that yet. So this isn't the virus, the simian virus virus. That's what SV stands for. This is, these are the, some component parts. This very strong promoter, which is used in biotech, and the enhancer, which is used to enhance transcription. The promoter is the little guy that starts transcription. So what's weird about this is that in your E. coli system, when you're talking about growing up this DNA that I just described, you need a promoter for a prokaryotic system because these bacteria are prokaryotes. So for every system that you're using, if you're using mammalian cells, there are promoters that you can use to optimize the outcome for that system. And in a um, prokaryotic system or E. coli system, there are promoters that you use to optimize the outcome of those systems. They're, they're specific to the system. So we didn't need, there's no need for these SV40 components to be in this, this system that typically uses something called a T7 promoter, which Pfizer did disclose. So they disclosed a whole bunch of stuff that is there by Kevin's analysis, but a lot of stuff that he found that's really inexplicable. What the hell are these things doing in this plasmid? And I'll tell you why this is alarming. The enhancer, there's a guy named David Dean. You can look him up. <clears throat> He's a gene therapy guy. He has a lab. His life is basically dedicated to um, gene therapy, which is like a way to um, fix people by swapping out genes. And the way that you're going to do that is you're going to have to get something to the nucleus and swap out the gene, as far as I understand it. So you're actually going to alter a genome. So he studies this stuff for a living. One of the things he studies and one of the things that he found is that this very same SV40 enhancer is the very best thing to use in biotech if you want to get something to the nucleus. Think about what I just said. You want to get something to the nucleus of the cell for gene therapy purposes, for example. What the hell is it doing there? A, it doesn't need to be there. B, it, it's functional. And the other thing is, I mean, the promoter is the same story. It, it, it doesn't need to be there. It doesn't have a function as far as I understand it. It wasn't disclosed. So this is the part that we, we have to call attention to because of the potential. And we're talking about potentials here. We're talking about hypotheticals. We always do this as part of the precautionary principle when we're drug developing. It's a part of the normal procedure to make sure that we know what we're doing, usually before we put shit into billions of people. But in this case, it's after, but we still need to do it. So if you... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. Continue, please. If you introduce a cell, let's just go to the cell, okay? With however many, let's just call it an onslaught 
a buckshot of foreign DNA pieces, because that's what Philip Buchholz found. He's one of the guys who confirmed Kevin's results. He actually set out to disprove Kevin. He was like, this guy's full of shit. I'm going to prove it. And he, he has his own lab. He's a molecular biologist and uh, studies cancer too. And he found exactly what Kevin found. He, he used a different method, different files, whole chain or the, 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 the chain was uh, not suspicious. He got them at a pharmacy, these vials. And he found not only a lot of DNA, but a lot of little pieces of DNA, like less than a hundred base pairs. And so his claim is that because you have this huge quantity of small DNAs, just by probabilities, in the presence of a nuclear location sequence, which might also be there, you could have these little pieces of DNA getting into the nucleus and potentially integrating into the genome. And that's and the some, reason someone had said, I don't know who said it, and I don't know where I read it, but the, the, the likelihood of that is like lightning striking in the same place three times in a row. Some, some astronomically minimal uh, probability. I guess on the, one, on the one hand, when things are happening you know, trillions of times every second throughout billions of people, then it's just a matter of time. But then it's to, you know, to argue about any real risk or theoretical risk. But first question first, the tiny bits of DNA, are they intact DNA? Or some people have described it as shreds of DNA, yeah. which, le which leads me to believe that it was DNA that was like itself, I don't know. Uh, it's not. It's shredded by DNAs one, by an enzyme that cuts DNA into little bits. So some of them are going to have uh, sticky ends. Some of them are going to have, you know, um, there's a word for it, um, flat ends. But it doesn't matter because there's another paper that studied the effects of having different kinds of ends. So anyway, I'll get to that. So listen, on, on that obnoxious comment about, well, you have a one in million chance. You know what? I don't stand in puddles during lightning storms. And I know that this isn't the same thing, but what the hell? Like, why would you want to take a chance when it's not just about, like this contamination thing, the DNA thing, is just another thing that's potentially problematic associated with these products. And I want to like just bookend that with the fact that there's something that everybody has heard of now called turbo cancer. And I'm not saying that it's directly because of integration, you know, but I'm not saying at all that it's not because of that, because I'm not a stupid idiot and I don't have the studies to prove that. You have to have done the studies and proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not happening before you can say oh, it's not a problem. Jess, look at this. I, I just have to do it in real time and I was doing it. And let me open this up. Turbo cancer is an anti-vaccination <laughs> myth. <laughs> this is this is from Wikipedia, people. It's a myth centered on the idea that people vaccinated against COVID-19, especially the mRNA vaccines, are suffering from a high incidence of fast-developing cancer. The myth, spread by a number of vaccine opponents and related influences, has no factual basis. Well, now I know. All right, J Jessica. Now, Wikipedia has chimed in. I'm going to read that afterwards. Um, it's the, the, the incidence of what... Call it, don't call it turbo cancer. That's the bad word. Aggressive fast mutating cancers uh there's statistical evidence to support that that uh, claim well i can tell you from like you know that i do ver stuff right 
from a very long time ago, um, there's like what I do is I look back 30 years because there's like 30 years of VAERS data plus the three since COVID. And I compare the number of reports in the context of all the vaccines combined to the number of reports in the context of the COVID products. Mm -hmm. And in every single adverse event case, and, and, and I normalize this to like in the case of flu, I normalize it against a million doses. So this, this whole, oh, it's just because there's more doses is bullshit. It's always like this. Like, yes, there are reports of cancer associated with all the other vaccines combined, but it's negligible compared to what we're seeing in the context of these COVID shots. And it's not over-reporting. VAERS is under-reported as a passive pharmacovigilance uh, database. So the it's not just the numbers, though. I, I don't only always go with numbers. I go with... Um, like, it's not just quality, it's, sorry, it's not just quantity, it's always quality with me. You have to look at both. The rate of increase of male breast cancers, this, there's another article that I saw on this the other day, some little little boy died of male breast cancer or something. You're, you're um, making me, you're, I, I was having chest pains before, Jessica, now I'm thinking maybe yeah, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to, hold on, there's, there's nothing there except for a massive bi uh, not bicep or whatever this thing is called. What is this bicep. thing called? Pectoral muscle. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, the, uh, a, a massive increase in male breast cancer. Yeah, weird cancers. Acute lymphocytic leukemia in old people. That's a childhood leukemia. Like it's, it's not common in old people. And the majority of reports in bears are in 50 plus people. It's, it's, a, it's a, atypical. I always look for anomalies and then I ask why. What's different? What's causing this? It's it's a sensible approach, I think. I'm not making a claim most of the time. I'm just saying, here, here's what's shown. I want to know why. This isn't normal. This isn't typical. So uh, what was I going to say? Oh, I will also really want to stress that I find it really gross in general, in normal, let's just say Western society, how normalized cancer has become. I'm not saying that humans aren't predisposed to get cancer. Obviously we are because we keep getting it, all different kinds. By the way, cancer is just like overproduction of cells. But when you combine all the things that I was talking about before, environmental toxins from the air, from the food, the endocrine disruptors we will like eat by the kilo, you know, we can't avoid it. Plastics, you know, like we're the generation of plastic consumers. Um, if you're a smoker, if you drink, all these epigenetic mutations that are going on all the time. When you combine, when you just like add layers to this onion of toxic waste, these, these balancing factors in your body that are normally really good under regular conditions, let's say, they, they can't handle it. It's all about losing the race. And so this is, if you just want to look at it this way, these shots are yet another like toxin that you're introducing to your body in a massive dose. And if you're repeating it, you're getting repeated doses plus immunological dysfunction. So it's, if cancer rates are increasing, I have zero doubt that these things are at least involved, if not the cause. 
So it, it's important that people acknowledge, like, we're already like a, a big tumor. You know, like Westerners are, are walking tumors. Like, I can't even believe it. It's like every single person I know has someone who's got cancer or dying from cancer. I don't think that's normal. Like, do you? I mean, I'm just Googling it. I, I have, I'm going to go read it. I don't want to come to conclusions too quickly. Why are cancer rates rising in adults under 50? This is January, 2023. And it's not, it's again, like, like you say, not to, not to point at all at one thing, just there's a, there's a, there's a trend. I don't know when they're measuring it from. Yeah. I, I look, my father-in-law died of cancer. I, I don't want to yeah. make anyone uncomfortable. Family members have had cancer. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, no, I mean, it's like every, everybody knows someone who's died of cancer um, without a question. I mean, also everybody knows, but at some point people get old and they die and then it's either cancer, heart attack, uh, you know, or, or yep. I mean, uh, um, it seems okay. like when you get shots, it, it kind of pushes, like it tips that scale. So this is another point about the cancers a lot. And this is, this is coming from oncologists that I know. They have patients and these are cancer doctors who have patients who have been in remission for years. They got the shots, boom, aggressive cancer, stage four, blah, blah, blah. I've yeah, seen yeah. pictures, it's like, well, no, and, just, and just some people are going to say, OK, well, it's not the jab. It's the three years of isolation. It's the three years of lockdowns. It's the three years of stress. What, that. Yeah. What, what is I, I put I had a note cortisol. Can you speak to cortisol levels in the body? Cortisol. I always so, always told that like stress releases cortisol. Cortisol in the body yeah. is bad for you, which is why it's people tell me it's hormone. It's totally normal. But I, I believe I'm not an expert on this. I'm going to take a shot in the dark that if you have, if, if you're stressed out all the time, like I yes. am, um, too, yeah. yeah, your cortisol levels are probably elevated for a prolonged period of time, which has damaging effects. I think it has something to do with free radicals and shit like that. So um, if you're not like supplementing with antioxidants or don't have an antioxidant rich diet already, you're probably going to be like, you know, cancering a little bit too much there <laughs> to use that, that terminology, but it's not good to have elevated levels of anything for a prolonged period of time. So whatever effects cortisol has being elevated for a prolonged period of time, it's probably not good. And that's what I know. Good. Okay. Now, so the DNA fragments, uh, on, on, it's a massive unknown, but it, it's an unknown in terms of long-term effects, but it's now a confirmed known in terms of reality. It's there. What the impact is, we'll find out in, you know, six months to five years time. So let me just put a cap on the SV40 promoter. So this is a very strong promoter. And what that means is that it's, it's really good at, at doing transcription. So it starts transcription of genes. So the reason why we're all kind of concerned, well, it's two reasons. If integration events are happening, you could be talking about a, a little bit of DNA integrating into an existing gene that's really important. Remember that P50 gene, guardian of the genome guy I was talking about? If you have a foreign bit of DNA, you know, splicing itself somehow into that P53 gene, it's effectively mutating the gene. You're, you're, that's not good. You lose your surveillance system. This is an extreme example. And yes, the chances are not high, but 
They are possible, and we need to answer these questions in the lab. We need to find out definitively by looking at people's cells. Well, the other thing is this SB40, which is a very strong promoter, if that gets into your nucleus and lands itself, uh, integrates upstream of an oncogene, which is a tumor-promoting gene, how is that not going to increase your risk for cancer? And you have both of these things as a possibility on top of what you were already going through. So let's just say you already have a BRCA mutation. Let's just say you already have a P53 mutation. You know, like these are studies we need to do because we, we could really get definitive answers by asking these really valid questions. They're not scaremongering. They're not, you know, um, they're not, uh, what's that word they call us? Um, fear, fear porn? Conspiracy uh, theories. It's, it's not that shit. This, this is how we, we've always done science. We find something anomalous. We go back to the lab and we find out, oh my gosh, what's this possibly doing to mammals? First, we, we look in mice and then we go to humans. And that's really important for everyone to know now. We need to test more vials to confirm these findings even more. We need to test people's cells because we can check right now if integration has ensued. And if we can like test, I don't know, what would be the number of people? 100,000 people? We find zero integration events? That's a good start. We can test a million people. If we find no integration events, that's awesome. Then we can go like, okay, we probably don't have a problem here. but. We cannot say there's no problem like all of these regulators and health agencies are definitively saying until we can actually say it. It's, it's gross. It's like your job. Health Canada has literally admitted to the presence of the SB40 promoter and then followed it with it's not a problem. No. They, they said Why it was, is it not a problem? They said, so, it was, they said it was safe and effective while in their manufacturing supply agreements, they said, we don't know the long-term effects and efficacy. I mean, it's, it's just, they, they have a lab, uh, Jessica. It just happens to be the world now. So they've got a lot of samples to, I'll, I'll, I, will, I will volunteer my, what would it be, a DNA? I'll, I'll volunteer a DNA sample so they can see if I've been, what did you say was the word? Transfected? What was the word? You've had an integration event. Integration. Not, you didn't get the shots, did you? I got, I, I, I got two. When you have a, a nagging oh, mother... You can you can definitely uh, uh, if you want me to I can put you in touch with Kevin because uh, oh, yeah, for, I mean uh, for sure there there I, are all these these things like you're not allowed to test on people or you could go to prison and shit so you need like the IRB and you need like special permission so you can't just kind of do it like you, you have to um, it has to be uh, legal or whatever. Well, put me put me in touch with him anyhow. I'll, I'm willing to be a guinea pig. I've already I've already volunteered. I, I, I volunteered myself once already. Yeah. Um, Jessica, I want to be respectful with your time because you've given me so much of it. Do you have a few minutes for a little after Q and A on locals? If I just end this yes. on on Rumble, because uh, uh, there are some questions there. Sorry, uh, what what do you want to say? Can I get a glass of water? Because I'm Boy, starting to like. Of, to... Can you? Of course. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna, do that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm going to kill some maritime here. Okay. <laughs> Viva Fry transfected American says Bob of Atlantis. Come over to locals. Uh, this has been amazing. I mean, I look, I, I, it's holy crab apples. I'm just reading. I want to go back to that. I want to go back to that Wikipedia page. You, you got, I, I got to read this one more time. Turbo cancer, 
is not a thing. It's a conspiracy theory, but wait until you read this. It's, it's a short entry. Turbo cancer is a vaccination myth. We got that. It has no factual basis in late 2020. As COVID vaccines were emerging, anti-vaccine doctors and social media personalities began circulating the unfounded idea that people vaccinated against it were developing rapidly spreading cancers. These claims have tended to misrepresent single case reports or speculate based on anecdotes, as though anecdotal evidence is not a form of evidence, but... Uh, Dr. Gorski summarized turbo cancer phenomenon as the usual misinformation to, oh, that's good, used by anti-vaxxers, citing anecdotes, wild speculations, yada, yada, yada. And then just to compare and contrast, we then go right over to why cancer rates are rising in adults under 50. So turbo cancer is an anti-vaccine myth, but cancers in people uh, 50 and over are rising. All right, what we're going to do, I noticed a lot of questions in our locals community. I haven't missed anything. Oh, Finboy Slick in Rumble. Oh, I see a dog who's rubbing her face on the ground. Uh, let me see here. Was it here? We got one Rumble rant here. Calling it, Viva tests will be inconclusive, but they will have irreparable proof of the neurotic gene. Guaranteed. In fact, they're going to say, like, we didn't know that there was actually a, a, neuro a, a neurotic gene. They'll call it the Viva gene. I'm going to stop screen here. Jessica's back. Okay, so hold on. I'm going to give everybody the link one more time to vivabarneslaw.locals.com. We're going to do it like get questions in there for everyone. Big data is nuts. This, I'm just reading some of the chats here. Who will have the authority to decide what is public health emergency and will control this distribution of health products in the future? Be good to each other. Get some sun and get some friends. Okay. Everybody, come on out of avivabarneslaw.local. I'm, I'm, I'm being spammed out of my own chat in Rumble. Uh, rightly so. Come over to avivabarneslaw.locals.com. We're going to use as much. Take Jessica's uh, insights for as long as she has left. Ending the stream on Rumble. Everybody out there, if you're not coming over, have a good day. Thank you for being here. I'll thank Jessica here for the Rumble crowd, but I'll thank you really after we're done on Locals. See you all there in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Now. Okay, so now we are... We are good on locals. So when you say antioxidants, I'm trying to think, like I eat so much arugula, uh, like raw arugula. That has antioxidants in it, right? I mean, that's, that's good? Sure it does. Yeah, I eat, are good. I eat sometimes so many, they don't digest. <laughs> so without getting into the TMI, just, like it's compulsive. I, it's just, it's, it's, okay, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to the questions here and um, let's see if you can answer these, Jess. Spinnaker says Viva has Jessica listened to Dr. Mackis on the increase in aggressive cancers that he thinks I is linked to. Him. Oh, say you were just gonna yeah, this linked to producing a large amount of LG IG, what is that? IgG4, LGG4, what is that? IgG4. So uh, I presume you know who Dr. Mackis is, Jess? Yeah, he's a Canadian guy. And I, I think he might have even come up with no. I don't know. He uses turbo cancer a lot to describe you know, what he's seeing. He's an oncologist and- uh, He's a crazy he, anti-vaxxer oncologist. If an oncologist calls it turbo cancer, listen to Wikipedia, sorry, okay. So I, I know about him from, uh, I don't know, a while back. He's the guy who started counting the uh, the people, the pilots, I think, who were dying suddenly. No, doctors, sorry. Um, and his list was like, I wrote a substack about it when it was like 18 doctors, which is already kind of like weird because they were like middle-aged. And now it's like, I mean, he's he's ver been very good at tracking people, like complete with death 
you know, details, obituaries and stuff. He's tracking pilots, like died suddenly people. Mm-hmm. And of course now he's, he's seeing these, what he calls turbo cancers. So, um, yeah, he knows a lot more about this than I do. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, it seems like an appropriate word to use when you're talking about um, aggressive yeah. advancement to stage four. And- no, they just they just want to go with the go with the less alarming mm-hmm. term aggressive cancers. There's been a surgence, a resurgence, or a surge of aggressive cancers. Oh, I'm looking. I'm looking at Pudge. She has um, Pudge has done her business all over the office. This is. <laughs> Oh, no. oh no! She she does it all the time. Like, we're we're on a schedule, but I know by noon. Well, that is a beautiful cat. Am I gonna am I gonna show everybody what my life is like here? <laughs> You're gonna show us here. your poop. Oh yeah, this is not that, well. We're on low. It, it, not that anybody really wants to see it. This is my life, and you'll notice the nugget. There's nuggets next to her. I'll, I'll have to get those. She's on the all beef diet, so it's very dry and very easy to pick up. My wife must have heard me talking about the poop. All beef. How do you stop? Marion just stuck her head and says, "I think you need to stop talking about the poop, Dave." Okay, sorry. Uh, we'll get to the next question here. Oh, okay. When will I, I think I can feel this one? This is when will Fauci and his band of liars be punished for their treachery and genocide? Uh, there, there will be lawsuits. Did we? Did we lose Jess? She's coming back. I've scared her away with, <laughs> she's like, that's it. I'm out of here. Um, I hope she's coming back. She's coming back. Unless her computer just went dead. Uh, let me, let me, let me get to these questions here. So we got, that is um, LS8878. Entry required, says Viva Fry, Jessica required. Rose. It's Viva Fry. I hear myself. She's coming back. Wow. So weird. <laughs> My computer just like stopped. Like I thought. I thought I. I thought I finally. I went one step too far with the picture of the dog poop. That's <laughs> like I'm out of here. <laughs> no, my computer oh. just like stopped, and I was like, "Where'd you go?" Like it just <laughs> never happened before. Like everything was just. The N- the NSA has now tapped into both of our computers as as if they didn't already have all that. Just there's there's a compliment in here. It says, "I imagine there are not a lot of people banging on your wait. I imagine there are not a lot of people banging on your door or yelling out to you on the surf to do grant study. Oh, I get to do grant studies on this. Um, well, that I mean that's an interesting thing. You get into the capture of this. There's going to be no financial incentive to look into any of this. Who who's going to fund this type of research? That's why recently uh, I participated in, uh, it it wasn't official Senate uh, uh, testimony, but you saw, um, if you didn't see Philip Buckholtz and Jancy Lindsay uh, gave testimony to South Carolina senators recently on this subject matter on the DNA ship. And so uh, it's really important that people start doing what we're doing now in the, in the states state by state because you're absolutely right no no federally funded program will start to do this so as far as i understand it the representatives in each state who have the power can demand that the tax paid institutions like the colleges and labs um, can do these studies because they're already set up to do it. They have all the IRBs and all the, you know, the legalities figured out because they're already set up. So I think they can be commanded to do this at the state level. 
as far as I understand it. So it's a good approach because if South Carolina like takes the reins and, and does this, which is what we're pushing right now, then other states will follow. Well, I, you know, I'm thinking just of how economics plays a part in all of this. You're, you're not going to have Fauci directing any of his funding to do the research. You're, not, you're sure as hell not going to have private pharma doing it. What will end up happening, if any of these lawsuits are massively successful and they prove to be you know, viable, um, financially beneficial class action lawsuits, I mean, you could have some form of, you could have a di an alternative method of funding the research if there's an economic interest to do it. Yep. It might it might only come from the prospect of successful litigation because there might be a lot of people pissed off. And, and I mean, this could be the you know, it'll be the first largest uh, criminal and civil penalty that Pfizer will pay. It'll take over the last two. Um, so that would be that would be one method. But so, OK, uh, uh, who, who, I mean, what would people at the state level, uh, what would people who I say, what would people at the state level do if they want to get involved? But what do they do? Write letters to their Congress people? I, I, I actually have no idea. I'm not even a U.S. citizen, but from what I understand, the, the, I think these were, yeah, these were state senators that they were giving testimony to. So I think they have the power to, to demand that these tests, like vials be tested in like state funded labs, for example, because it's, yeah, they get money from pharma, but they're also taxpayer funded. So mm -hmm. Basically, there, there's like this connection between the people and the representatives of the people and where their tax dollars go and what they actually want. So it, it really does come down to, I don't know, like the specifics or the legalities, but from what I understand, it can be done that way. Well, I'm just looking... I'm, I'm looking into when this when this page loads up, you know, DeSantis set up a grand a COVID grand jury in Florida to investigate. So, I mean, this 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 would be the object of the investigation and they have state funding for it. Um, OK, let me see here. Let me get uh, this one. Ginger Ninja says that might actually be a bicep Viva because of the gene therapy that infiltrated your nuclei. Viva grows a third bicep. Oh, man, I, I, I've lived in fear of life since before the jab. This was just like, this is, might even be a good distraction from the irrational fears that I had growing up. Um, we got Nixis, oh, that was from Ginger Ninja. And we got Nixis says, do not forget of the importance of zinc and zinc ionophore. What I would like to know is how beneficial something like a zeolite would be. Jessica, do you even know what a zeolite is? No, how do you spell that? Uh, Zeolite, Z-E-O-L-I-T-E. -E. I'm going to be looking at, I mean, I'm, look, I, I, I never give legal, medical, or election fornication advice, and I certainly don't give um, medical advice. Uh, I'll, I'll look, I, I know a lot of people have told me about the detox stuff. I'm like, what year is it now? I'm, I, the last shot I had was August 2021. So I think I, you know, but for um, other long-term stuff, you know, I, I looked into the batches of our batches and there were virtually no uh, reported uh, adverse events. Oh, that's right. Well, we didn't talk about this live with everybody, Jess, but um, what, what was your understanding of like some of these hot batches? What, what are, what's the latest known? Like 20% of the batches account for 80% of the adverse events. Is there any known uh, stat on that? Uh, so, first of all, if you're talking about looking at VAERS, <clears throat> which is what we're doing here. We're, we're associating like serious adverse events with lot numbers. So you can do that in VAERS. You can look at a lot and you can calculate the percentage of serious adverse events um, 
per total number of adverse events. It's the best way to do it. But disclaimer, um, Vaxlot data in VAERS is very bad. It's mm -hmm. very, very poor quality. So you have to be careful when you're comparing the number of reports between batches because it could just be that one batch, basically just because of the nomenclature, could have been added like in like it could have been written down wrong more often so it looks like there are fewer reports for it mm -hmm. you, you really have to think of it this way but having said that there's absolutely and i've been saying this from the very beginning vile variability not just lot variability so what's I mean, how, how does that make sense the vials are drawn from lots so what does that mean like some vials are not treated properly they get different temperatures how, how do you have variance exactly. among vials exactly okay uh, besides the the potential for differences in contaminants like if we're talking about dna amounts handling is really important so in terms of adverse events variability is at many many different levels here so you have this batch potential variability because of how it was manufactured how many vials were or in the batch were manufactured where it was manufactured how good their testing was for uh, contaminants, for example. And then you have this, you know, did, was it kept cold? Is it degraded? Um, <clears throat> did it have glass in it? Was it administered? Well, that's besides the, well, unless you get like a shard of a needle inside it. Yeah, it's, um, there's, there's definitely variability. Um, and these, it's, it's like really, really fascinating stuff. Like if there was any way for us to get like a clean list of what the DNA levels were for even one lot, you know, compared mm -hmm. to um, a database that's not theirs, like um, some kind of more 100% reporting, like, you know, an active reporting system, which I'm not aware of that we have. I mean, man, the correlations, <laughs> it would just be like so standout-ish. Like, we all know that it's there, but it's like, because of all the, the hiding and the non-transparency and the redaction and the, and the Tom Fuller... The useless redactions, like we got the Canadian manufacturing and supply agreement, which was redacted, but you can you can compare it to the South African one, which was not redacted. So, you know, basically what was there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to read this one. Time Bandit 66 says class actions only make lawyers money. What we need is mass prosecutions. Making lawyers money as bad as that is, is actually a decent way to create a market for, you know, it, it is the mass litigation that has uh led to sort of the re the internal regulation of industries so make pharma make a tobacco pay enough money they'll change make uh big tech or make a social uh, that's that's what i think so like it, it doesn't matter it makes the lawyers money but that's also how you create a market uh uncle dude says what is the possibility of transmission of the unvaccinated via exchange of bodily fluids and i think that i imagine that that's a um sort of a variation of of shedding What's your thoughts on, on viral shedding or not, sorry, not viral shedding. Um, what is it? Vaccine shedding or, or yeah, protein shedding. Um, um, I, I was at, at the beginning, I'm like, at the beginning, I thought it was crazy, but I've yeah, lived long enough now that I'm, I'm not writing it off as crazy. What are, what are your thoughts on that? 
I think it's entirely possible because we're shedding proteins constantly. It's also possible less. I don't know, right? Like we, ah, these LNPs are killing me. Like, here's the thing that I've been thinking about lately. If there's a possibility through exhalation, let's say, of passing the lipid nanoparticles now, like as, as you know, intact entities, I'm not saying that this is, we know that this is true. I'm just, I, you know, this is how I do things. It's like, if that was possible, and this was full of DNA bits, what are the chances that that's going to transfect another person's cells? And, and if integration events happen, like, what, you know what I mean? It gets you thinking. It's like, because the reason I'm thinking this way is because of all this pre-talk from certain psychopaths about making transmissible vaccines. You've heard about that? No. So you won't have to get people to get vaccines anymore or injections because they'll be giving them to, to each other. And that's basically what shedding sounds like. To okay, me. I, I had heard, I think I had heard not two variations of that, but uh, talk about using mosquitoes to administer yeah. vaccines. Yeah, this is another vector borne idea, but I mean, there's so many additional things to consider with mosquitoes because they're, you know, they're living entities and they carry pathogens and all that stuff. But like, if, if you want to, I mean, it sounds like sci-fi, but does it? Well, we're, uh, there's a lot of things that are reality that sounded like sci-fi and dystopian, you know, you, you, dystopian nightmares that you never thought could be reality. Mm. Uh, please ask Jessica what she thinks the motivation was for tainting the job. Well, I, I, I think they mean in general, like this whole thing. I think I know your answer because I've heard it before, but um, what do you think? Uh, deliberate uh, negligence, stupidity, arrogance? Do you mean, do you mean the DNA shit? Uh, I think they mean, I think they probably mean all of this, like screwing up or, or rushing the jab, lying about it. Is it incompetence? Is it negligence? Or is it uh, nefarious? It's, it's a melange of all those things. Like, um, in terms of the injections, specifically this LNP modified mRNA platform, which is not going anywhere, by the way. That's why we need a moratorium smacked on the whole goddamn thing right now. But um, I think, this is just what I think, that the whole COVID thing was manufactured to get that uh, product normalized. That's what I think. I think they needed a way to test out a whole lot of people, this new technology, so that they could normalize it because they have some other thing mm -hmm. for it. I don't know what that thing is. In terms of um, nefariousness, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of evil assholes out there. I, I will say that. Um, so it's not hard for me to believe that some of them, you know, because they tend to have a lot of money, these ones, that they might have engineered uh, things to occur in a certain um, planned way. It's, not, it's definitely uh, <laughs> looking that way. Um, and in terms of the... The coronavirus itself, I'm, there's no doubt in my mind that that was made and it's, it's not a good thing. And like the, the spike protein is really bad thing, uh, in terms of the peptides that it has, the specific protein bits that it has, uh, inside it. And we know that cause they've been sequenced. It's been sequenced and admittedly from their end the spike protein that they used as a template for the 
the coding template for the modified MRA products was the in, in the image of the original Wuhan thing. So it's like that original, you know, horror show. So it's like, why? Like, so you you can you can be like, yeah, it's really hard for me to believe that um, they didn't do that on purpose. And kind of like maintain that small hope that it was a mistake, which it tends to tends to be what I do to keep my sanity. Because no, I really, like, really don't want to believe it, but I, I don't know if Steve Bannon said it, but I know that he says it. You know, once is an accident, twice is a coincidence, third time is enemy action. And this there's there's too much here that it's not enemy action. The only question is, what is the motivation? Money, easy to believe. Uh, depopulation. Yeah harder to believe because it's not, I don't think this is actually going to work for depopulation because the countries that are producing the most babies are not getting affected by this. Or I, I don't, I don't think there's mass jab. I think population replacement. Hey, you could say now the Canadian population, excess deaths, too many immigration, open up the borders, change the debt, change, change the voting demographic of the country. Isn't that disgusting? It's well, the, the, they're saying it out loud. They're saying like the population's not growing enough. We need yeah. to uh, open the borders to immigration. People aren't having enough babies and uh, it's going to be good for the economy. Double the, the Canadian. The thing about the um, depopulation thing, like I agree with you completely, but here's the thing. It's, it sounds the same, but it's not. I don't think they're trying to intentionally kill people. I think it's much more profitable to make people sick myself, but they don't give a crap if you die. Really, like we're collateral nothings to to the you know the the, the lizard overlords, <laughs> whoever they are. Um, it's gross. It's like that you you've lost your humanity and you you have no you just you, that that position they they seem to have you know, you it ain't gonna last, man. Well, the, the amazing thing, you know, always go back to Mark Twain and history, not repeating, but tending to rhyme. When the numbers are in and people are using the term genocide now, and it sounds hyperbolic. I don't know, like when they asked Clinton during the Rwandan genocide, when do acts of genocide become genocide? Like how many hundreds of thousands of people dying or getting injured makes it a genocide? And we're when, there now. I, that's, that's what I'm gonna say. Like when the numbers are out and then they're gonna say, oh, well, we didn't know. You, I mean, it's it's amazing rhyming. A number of people said we didn't know after World War II when they when when people were dying. So they'll oh well, we didn't know we were just following orders. And sure, it won't be trains and it won't be camps, but it it sounds a lot the same. Just you know, mutatis mutandis. Over time, they can't do it. And whether or not it, well, it was an accident, we didn't do it on purpose. All right, good. So the starvation of of, of millions of Ukrainians back in the Holodomor and did nothing. Yep. And, and, and shut the people up who, who were saying, who were raising the alarms or raising the flags. For money. Yeah. Oh God. I was listening to, uh, oh no, that was right. It was the intro to one of the podcasts where they're talking about Pfizer. They're, they're, nobody's buying their shit anymore. Like the, 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 the jab now I think is down to like five or 7%. The last booster was down to 17% uptake and they're losing money. Paxlovid, nobody's buying. So, and now they're charging for this. And oh, they're their forecast. We're only gonna our, our forecasts are deaf. They're gonna be bankrupt because they never well not not Pfizer but Moderna. They never had a product except for this, and yeah. they're not gonna have another product after this. Yeah, exactly. Do you guys know that they never had an on-market product before these things? M Moderna, M M Moderna, not Pfizer. Everybody, Pfizer yeah. just had never done mRNA. Moderna had never had a product. Then they go build their fifty million dollar mega factory in Laval, just outside of Montreal 
What the hell are they going to manufacture when this comes out that it didn't work and that it was actually more harmful than good for a great many people? Oh, that 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 facility goes down. Oh, Jessica. Okay, we're we're gonna two hours and fifteen minutes. My goodness, thank you. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna end this. Everybody on locals, thank you. Very much. Let me just make sure I didn't miss anything here. Disturbing to consider, says Cindy three five. I know uh, she sounds a lot like Jordan Peterson, Mighty P, and I know that is meant as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, in in terms of knowledge and expertise. Thank you. Um, all right, and we're gonna. Uh, there's a number I'm of comments. I think. On Jordan, so thank you. Oh. Wait, say, say that again. I'm 50-50 on Jordan. I like him. I, he doesn't have to get everything right all the time. I, he's no, he's no. fighting. I'm 50-50. Squeaky Sometimes. Wheel says, what would be the rough, rough, the rough estimate be to conduct one of these studies? Nearest million or even 10 million USD. You mean testing people's cells for integration? Yeah, let me know. Well, like private studies, where they they're millions of they're millions oh, and millions of dollars. Private studies, it's it's dollars. We're talking dollars. It's like um, to 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 do qPCR to to run these reactions is not expensive. Like all all of this, like we need a study and a funding and all, all. It's just that that's just like all nonsense. If people actually knew, like the thing that's worth money is people's time and energy. And it's like somehow along the way, we've just like de-equated that. It's like all of a sudden ideas are, are, are like, ideas of things have value. And it's like, no, you have value. Your time is valuable. Your life is valuable. I know I'm going on a tangent here, but it's like, man, to do this work would be not expensive. And all the freaking people, including myself, would work for free. You know, like that's, that's the truth. The problem are these like stupid hurdles that, that, uh, you know, the officials and the bureaucrats have to impose, you know, on, on on experts. And I I shouldn't have air quoted that. I mean, the actual experts, not, not the so-called experts. Jess, there is a reason why you are universally loved by the right people. And so thank you for, thank you for giving me uh, so much flipping time and and i hope people are gonna get something out of this and something positive and not just um doom and gloom which i, I don't think they could possibly walk away from with there's some optimism but uh at least they know now all right jessica we're gonna say our proper goodbyes afterwards i'm gonna end on locals which is our last platform here and locals i'll see you later on this afternoon but going live tomorrow jess where oh i forgot to ask i'll put the links everywhere where can people find you Oh, I brought it up during the stream. Okay, I did. I did do too bad. I'll put the links in. But where can people find you? No, you you didn't do too bad at all. <laughs> I oh, it's, I always forget to do this, but I'll I'll, I'll stick yeah. the link in. Everybody knows that I'm a, a model actress. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, oh, I I'm a married man. I I will I will uh, no no comment. But um, I've seen you surf. You're a, you're a very talented surfer. Oh, now, thanks. Yeah, well, I what, actually joked with someone that I could be a longboard model. Like I'd do that in a second, you know, just put me beside any like gorgeous log and I'll, I'll be like you know, <laughs> the happiest person and I'll, I'll sell your product. I'm just kidding. But, um, I'm really just kidding. I'm not like that. Um, <laughs> well, don't, we know what you meant, but okay. But your, your the Substack is jessicar.substack.com or jessica5b3 if you want to go for more current events i I put movies there too like documentaries and uh 
Jessica's Universe is where you go for um, my CV and some papers I published. And uh, oh, all my interviews end up there. I've been doing a lot of those lately. So you'll find that on the interviews tab. Um, I had a CHD show, so I, I had some great guests. You can find that there too. And Bears Analysis. And I have Twitter, but uh, I, I, I just, I don't get it. Like, I had 3,000 followers removed overnight the other day, and it's like people are saying, oh, those are just the bots. And I'm like, no, because there's no, there's no uptick anymore. It's like Jessica's locked in. There's no more people for Jessica. <laughs> Let me see here. It, it's... um. Just, just yep. loves MGK. Yeah, here I'm gonna put that in. I'm gonna put blow up. I'm just looking at it. Also, yeah, I, I notice there are some. I, there are some. I notice it as well. I don't care about the numbers on Twitter because for me it's just a running diary. But I, I do notice it. And I, I wonder what's going on too. But um, all right, I'm gonna put all of the links in the pinned comment on 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 Rumble so everybody can see it. Jess, okay, stick around, everybody on locals. Thank you all for being here. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Peace out, everyone.